I was thinking while I was standing down there, um, I had my eyes closed almost the entire time this morning. Towards the end, I thought, why do I close my eyes? <laughs> and I began to think, like, we close our eyes when we worship. I'm sorry, when we close our eyes also when we pray, usually. Don't have to, but, but we usually do. And um, I think... In a sense, again, hear me here, I'm not trying to be weird, but like I, I would argue this is true, is like to close our eyes in this world helps us to open our eyes in another world. And there was um, John Stott, uh, who was a great minister over in, over in England, preacher, wrote a lot of great theological works, wrote a book about preaching and, and worship, and he, he wrote, the title of the book was Between Two Worlds. And the, the big idea just being in preaching that when you stand and proclaim the word of God, that you're, you're standing between two worlds, between, between heaven and earth. But it's not just true of preaching. It's, it's what we do in prayer. It's what we do, it's what we do in worship. And um, I don't know. I'm just really, really thankful that we get to. Amen? We get to, that God has created us in such a way that we get to stand between these two worlds here until we're with him perfectly in another world someday whether we die or whether he comes or whether he comes back but we get to stand between these two worlds and that's why I just love um, gathering with God's people because we get to we get to stand here and as we sang this morning uh, I really do believe that he inhabits the praises of his people and he's in us all the time he's not going to leave us or forsake us we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession but when his people come together it's not about a building. It's not about just some sort of outward temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit that he's come to indwell. And above all else, um, we were made to worship him. Amen? Father, thanks for today. I just thank you that we, we truly do. We stand between two worlds. As long as you let us have breath here, so we just sang about it. It's your breath in our lungs. We, we want to worship you and we want to proclaim the message that you've given us to proclaim. But Lord, how at the same time we also really do long for the day when all evil, all sin, all hurt, all pain, all death is destroyed. Your word says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And it has been, you, you resurrected, it's already, but it's not yet, but you're coming back and one day it is going to be completely annihilated. All things under your feet. So thank you that we get to stand here today, thank you that we get to worship. Please help us now as we look to your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. God is so good. Got your Bibles, grab them. Today we are coming to the end of what is probably... Uh, the largest section, the largest transition in the book of Romans, that is the, the, the transition between chapter 11 and, and chapter 12, where uh, Paul kind of uh, ends talking about the theological part in terms of what is true, and then next week in chapter 12 and through the rest of the book, he's going to talk about what to do, what is true and, and, and what to do. But um, this really is, in many ways, uh, the high point of the letter, Paul really, or, or of this section, Paul really does take us out 
on a crescendo. As I said several weeks ago, um, I think most people stop at the end of Romans chapter 8, and because 9, 10, and 11 are a little bit heavy and a little bit confusing, and maybe even at times a little bit offensive, uh, we tend to just kind of uh, compartmentalize it as something else. But Paul has continued to take the message forward, and we're going to look at that today. Let me jump in and read this so that we can uh, hopefully get to everything, uh, at least to some degree, this morning. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 25. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me one more time. Father, please help open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. And it is in Christ's name that I pray. (coughs) Amen. Uh, One of the gifts of God's grace to me personally over the years as I've been following Jesus has been the gift that he has given me of just good gospel-centered friendships and relationships. Um, I mentioned him from time to time. He doesn't attend here, but one of my, probably my best friend is a, is a guy named Merv, Mervin Yoder. Uh, and uh, we've known each other. We, we really started following Christ around the same time. And uh, we didn't know each other growing up, but when we got saved, you know, over 20 years ago now, um, we would just kind of bump into each other at all these different prayer meetings and stuff like that. And we formed a friendship. And Ended up starting a business together and different things like that back in the day. But anyway, Merv has been a gift of God to me, a gift of grace in, in my life, one of, one of many relationships like that. And back in the day, we used to live in Canton, and he lived, him and his family lived just around the corner from us, and we moved up there to do some uh, street ministry and inner city ministry, but we also started a roofing business together back in the day. And Merv is, uh, has been a gift to me primarily because um, he's not afraid to wrestle with me. And I don't mean physically actual, actual wrestle, although it got close sometimes, um, but just, just wrestle with me theologically, and you know, I can press pretty hard, but he's not afraid to press back. And I really do, do count that as a gift. And so back in the day, we would, you know, in the morning, one of us would pick the other one up from work because we lived right around the corner from each other, and we'd go out. And usually the whole way, the whole way to work, we would talk about some th- sort of theological topic. And the whole way home from work, we would talk about some sort of theological to- topic. And when I say talk, I really mean have quite a argument um, uh, about, you know, whatever sort of topic. Some of the things that we've talked about over the last 
over the last uh, several months and weeks, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We talk about the very nature and essence of the gospel, what church is, what church uh, should, should be, how we should live on mission. We would talk about all these different things, and um, it was, it's, it's, it's funny, I guess you kind of had to be there, but we would literally, like I'd be driving home and we'd be having this argument the whole way home about something, and then I would come to his door, I'd drop him off, and I'd be like, okay, have a good evening. Say hi to the kids, wife and, ki- wife and kids for him. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, and we're good. And then we, he, when I'd go back in the morning to pick him up for work, he'd jump back in the car, and we would literally pick up the argument right where we left off. We, we, we really would. It was just kind of the nature of our relationship. And I say all that to say because what I want to do this morning is I want to pick up, not the argument, but the conversation right where we left off last week, because that's what Paul does. you got to stay in the flow of thought from last week. And last week, what we said was, is that Paul has taken us up on a high mountain. He has put on the panoramic lens, and he is showing us the nature of God's work in salvation, not just in time and space and individuals, but across generations, across nations, um, across, across centuries, and how he has worked in all of humanity, but he puts all of humanity into two groups, as the Bible often does, Jews and Gentiles. Okay, and the, and the picture that he uses, is the primary metaphor that we looked at last week, is this picture of the olive tree. That there's one olive tree and some branches, natural Israel, un, unbelieving Israel, was broken off, but there was a root that had faith in Jesus Christ. And the, and the Gentile church has been grafted into that, but there's not two different trees, there's one tree. And the primary thing we ended with last week was that, was that this should cause a great humility in us towards the lost but it should also cause a reverent fear in us towards God. So you hear me talk all the time about these two different planes, the horizontal plane, our relationship with others, and the vertical plane, our relationship with God. And in the horizontal plane, we should have humility towards those who do not know Jesus because we once did not know Jesus, amen? And so there's no reason to be arrogant. He says, don't don't be arrogant towards the natural branches. In the context, he's speaking of the natural branches being unbelieving ethnic Jewish people who have been broken off, but it's not as if God can't graft them back in. Because in the same way, we too were once unbelieving, but God has brought us in. And towards God, we should be filled with a reverent fear and trembling that stands amazed at his grace. And so he, Paul kind of picks it up right there, and you'll see a similar idea in regards to this humility towards the lost, but also this fear and trembling that we have towards God in verse 25, and we'll get there in just a second. But what he's going to do is he's going to continue to unpack this same idea of how God has been working across all of world history, ever since the creation of the world, to bring people to himself, that despite the mess that we make, God shows unbelievable mercy. And so we gotta, we got to come into it with that mindset and understand what Paul was talking about. Now, the way I want to approach this is it breaks down pretty easily into two sections. Sections. Paul continues to explain some really deep theological truths, and then he breaks off towards the end in verses 33 through 36 into some really spontaneous, inspired praise in regards to the theological truth that he's just talked about, not just in these verses this morning, but in all of Romans 1 through 11, um, and that we've been studying so far here at Mercy Hill since the beginning of the year. But what he's going to do in the first part of this section this morning, in verses 25 uh, through about 32, he's going to continue to tease out this idea of what God's been doing throughout redemptive history, but there's some subtle details that I feel like really get missed and that I want to kind of spend most of my time highlighting this morning as we kind of, as we kind of work, work through this. And, it's, and the way I'm going to kind of approach this is not this, but this, and not this, 
but this. And so this outline will initially be a little bit confusing, but let me give it to you and hopefully it will make sense as we go, as we go through it. But as we work our way through verses 25 through, 30, through 32, here's what I want to point out. Not when, but how. Not how, but who. Not one, but both. And not then, but now. Let me say that again. Not when, but how. Not how, but who. Not one, but both. Not then, but now. Are you thoroughly confused yet? You're welcome. Okay, let's jump into it, and hopefully I can unpack it. First of all, in verses 25 and 26, not when, but how. Not when, but how. Now, the thing that is, the thing that is difficult and that is much debated about this passage and also the passage we looked at last week and that makes it even slightly different from chapters 9 and 10 is that in, to some degree, Paul is almost certainly speaking about things yet future. Okay? And what makes that difficult, and this is the nature of all, all sorts of prophecy, is that, and let me just quote Sinclair Ferguson here, he says, the interpretation of any biblical prophecy is only given its fullest meaning when that prophecy is fulfilled. In other words, in regards to prophecy, there are some things that we're not going to fully understand, and guess what? We will understand it fully when it actually happens. That's what he's saying. Make sense? Right? Now, that's not to mean that we should shy away from it or that we can't know anything, but again, he says the interpretation of any biblical prophecy is given its fullest meaning when that prophecy is fulfilled. And in regards to what Paul is speaking about here, on some level he's speaking about the future of the inclusion more wholesale of the Jews back in to the one olive tree. But at the same time, the question becomes, is he speaking of one mass event towards the end of time, space, history, at the eschaton, the Bible refers to it, when Jesus comes back, or is he speaking of it as yet future, not just then, but also like later today and later this week? And what I want to argue for is that, yes, both, God is going to be doing this to the end of time, and I think that we have good reason to believe that there's going to be some sort of mass revival, is basically what it's going to look like, in Jewish people actually turning to their Messiah, who is also our Messiah. There's one Messiah, one olive tree, Jesus, Jesus Christ. But not just out there someday, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, five hundred years from now, whenever the Lord comes back. But it's something that was yet future for Paul, but was also happening in his day. And that what I want us to understand is also happening in our day and so that we can live with great hope. And that's what I mean when I say not when, but how. Let me show you this. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. So there it is again. Approaches with an attitude of humility because of what he's about to explain and what he has just explained. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, a couple things. Let me highlight the word mystery. Okay, A mystery, when the Bible uses the word mystery in the New Testament, it is not speaking of something that we can never understand. It is speaking about something that was once veiled but has now been revealed. Okay, 
And so what he's speaking about here is this mystery that the Gentiles are going to be included. When I say veiled, in the Old Testament, and and most of what Paul has done throughout this section and throughout the whole letter, is he quotes Old Testament scriptures, um, and in particularly in this section, regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles, meaning it was there. He's not making this up. It was in the Old Testament, but it was veiled. People didn't quite see it. We didn't quite understand it. But now this mystery has been revealed in the New Testament, which is, and it's the mystery that is exactly what Paul is unpacking here in Romans chapter 11, as, as, as well as many other places. You follow me? So this mystery isn't something, oh, it's a mystery. I, you know, we can never understand it. Well, no, it, it was veiled. It was hidden. Think like a Christmas present. It's, un, it's under the tree, it's there, the kids know that there's going to be something for them on Christmas morning, yet they don't know exactly what it is. But something's definitely there. In the New Testament, it's been, it's been fully revealed to us that the Gentiles are a part of this. Let me give you some cross-references quickly. Ephesians chapter 3, notice the same language. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, listen, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. What's the mystery? When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, not two bodies, not two olive trees, not two different groups of people, not two tracks of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him, whether you're nationally born ethnic Jewish or whether you're Gentile. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see what I'm saying? This mystery was once revealed, but Paul has been given revelation as an apostle as well as the other apostles and early prophets that are now bringing bringing about this mystery. Now, that's one thing. The other thing here is the way that he uses Israel. Let me just say that as you read, if you think there's confusing things in Romans 9, this section here is even more hotly debated against all sorts of theological backgrounds. doesn't matter if you're Arminian, Calvinistic, um, uh, uh, Pentecostal, Reformed, like it just, everybody is, is spread out all, all over the map on this, and, that, and the debate is whether or not, in verses 25 and 26, what he means by the word Israel, okay? So I know we're getting technical here, but hang, hang with me. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, there's no debate on this one. Everybody agrees that what he's speaking of here is in regards to ethnically born Jewish people, the nation of Israel, like Paul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, like a full-blooded Israelite. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he says this, and in this way, all Israel, all Israel will be saved. And the debate is on whether or not when he uses Israel in verse 26, He's speaking of Israel as national-born ethnic Israel, as he used it in verse 25, or of whether or not he's speaking of spiritual Israel. 
Okay, so I'm just letting you know there's great debate on this, and this is why I go back to, it's like, which one exactly is it? Well, I think it's, I think it's spiritual Israel, all those who have trusted in Christ. But again, as Sinclair Ferguson said, the interpretation of any biblical prophecy is given its fullest meaning. When that prophecy is fulfilled, someday we'll see when Jesus, when Jesus comes back. But let me show you the reasons why I think he uses Israel as ethnic Israel in verse 25, but he's speaking of spiritual Israel in verse 26. The main reason being, you're like, well, Eric, is he allowed to do that? Why would he use it one way in verse 25 and a different way in verse 26? Well, admittedly, it's usually not the best exegetical principle to take the, how he uses it here and in the, next, in the next sentence use it a different way. However, he's already done that. And it's been the controlling idea throughout this entire section. Do you remember Romans 9, verse 6? He says, I say to you, not all who are Israel are Israel. Do you remember that? And so the point, he has already done that, and, the, and there's this been controlling idea throughout chapters 9, 10, and 11 that he's speaking about two Israels. He's speaking about the Israel that is the natural-born descendants of Abraham, and then he's speaking about true Israel, spiritual Israel, that has accepted Christ. And that includes not just Gentiles, but also Jewish people who have believed in the Messiah. Are you with me so far? I know we've just jumped into the deep end of the theological pool here this morning, but there's some really good stuff in here, and, and it matters. And I believe that what he's saying is, is that a partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and meaning, again, this was happening back in Paul's day, it's happening in our day. But remember, part of what he talked about last week is that these Gentiles, it's through their salvation that God's going to stir the ethnic Jewish people up to jealousy, and they're going to be saved. Not just someday, but it was already happening in Paul's day, remember. That's why Paul said, remember last week we talked about, he's going to magnify his ministry so that some might be stirred up to jealousy and be saved. He was talking about in the here and now. And then, and one of the, one of the other little details is, is verse 26. Look at the little phrase in verse 26. In the ESV, it's worded this way. It says, in this way, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now let me just say, one of the ways that I think a lot of people read this is they read it, and, they, and it's easy to, to kind of gloss over little phrases like this, but they read it as if it says, and at this time all Israel will be saved. It doesn't say at this time, it says in this way. Now what is the way in which they're being saved? Remember the progression from last week? God comes to the nation of Israel, gives them his covenant promises, they harden their hearts, branches are broken off, through that breaking off, Gentiles are saved. Through Gentiles being saved, it stirs Israel to jealousy, and through that jealousy, they then come back to salvation. So I believe that when he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, he's talking not about just a specific time in the future when it's going to happen in mass, although I do think that could happen. I just don't think it's exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about the manner in which. That's why I said, not when, but how. How this is happening. And it was happening in Paul's day. It is still happening today. And it is going to continue to happen throughout history until the fullness of the Gentiles, everybody that God wants to be saved, comes into the kingdom. Do you follow me? Okay. Can I, let, let me pause and take an aside here. Okay? Because right now, again, it is an interesting thing preaching to a church. 
Because I know that, and it's, it, it's no fault, this is just true for all of us. Every one of us, some of you, like, are still checking out Christianity. You're not even sure, like, if you fully believe everything that we're talking about or if the Bible's true. Some of you have just gotten saved recently, started following Jesus. Others have been following Jesus for decades, even, even, longer, even longer than I have. Let me just pause and give an aside here, because what I'm, I don't want to do is just give some sort of a lecture here that, that shoots over top of you, but let me give a little bit of context um, for some of these things. <laughs> In regards to the study of theology known as eschatology, which is the study of end times things, or the, or the last things it means, is I've been following Jesus for 22, 23-ish years as a disciple, and it has taken me every bit of 20 years to just be able to wrap my mind around all the different end time schemas. So some of you are about to hear these words that I'm about to say. Others of you have never even heard this before. But you, you've got, within the study of end times, you've got pre-mill, post-mill, mill Within premillennialism, you have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Within that, you have dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. You have different brands of amillennialism with, in regards to how they interpret this passage, even in regards to that, you have different brands of post-millennialism. And I'm just, so just, if, if you're like, Eric, this is, like, I'm here this morning, and I, you know, you're just making things confusing. Listen to me. It has taken me 20 years just to be able to wrap my mind around all the different options, understand them correctly without bias, and be able to explain them. Okay? So just understand that, like, if, if you're confused, it's okay. It's not because you're dumb. And I'd also like to say, it's not because I'm not explaining it well. Um, it's just, it's hard. It's hard, okay? So it's like, I don't live under the illusion that I, I'm just going to like, you know, explain all this in a, in a moment this morning. I'm trying as best I can. But like, if, you, if you're confused, just from a pastoral perspective, it's all right, okay? Just take a deep breath, and here's what you do. Let me, let me say this, though, and then I'll get back to the text. Just as a disciple, you know how you grow in it? You don't just shy away from it and go, oh, that's confusing, I'm not going to deal with it. No, 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 no. You read it again and again and again and again and again, and you study it and you break it down and you write it out and you cross-reference and you come back to it again and again and again. You with me? That's what disciples do. We live in the word and we allow it, and we allow it to shape us. So not just when, but how. He's speaking of the manner in which this is going to happen. Secondly, not just how, but who. Look at verse 26. I love this. Because you're like, this is confusing. Can we just talk about Jesus? Yes, we can. Because he's right here in the passage. I love it. And he is called the deliverer. Paul quotes here, and he, it, it seems, most commentators would say, as you cross-reference this, what is Paul quoting? It's not just one passage. It's kind of a conglomeration or as one commentator said, a potpourri of different passages, probably uh, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, and a little bit of, of Jeremiah 31. But he, he says here, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So not just how, the manner in which it was happening, but notice now he, he puts the focus on to who. And who's the Who? It's Jesus. He is the deliverer. It literally means, this is so beautiful, it literally means rescuer. As you dive into the word, again, deliverer or rescuer, I know, again, this is a little bit technical, but that would be a noun, right? 
noun, like person, place, or thing. But in, in, in the original, it's a little bit hard to convey in English. It's, the word that he uses here is a verb. And, and the point being is like, yes, it is speaking not just about an action, but about who he is. But the emphasis is on the action. The emphasis is on what he does. What does he do? He delivers. He rescues. The word, the verb itself that means to rescue, it literally means to draw to oneself. How does he rescue us? He comes and he draws us to himself. He delivers us from sin. And again, what is the nature of this rescue? Look at it. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now again, a little technicality here. And again, I'll, I'll just admit that a lots, of, lots of really good godly guys are spread out all over the map on what this means. Notice the, the little word will, which tends to give it a future tense. And so you're like, well, Eric, I'm not sure you know, uh, what you're talking about here because it, it says the deliverer will, meaning yet future. So it can't be something he's doing now, but you have to keep in mind what Paul is quoting here from the Old Testament is that the first coming of Christ was yet future when this was written by the prophet Isaiah, you understand. And so when the prophet Isaiah wrote, the deliverer will come from Zion, my point being is that it was yet future for him, and what he's referring to here in these verses is the first coming of Christ, not the second one. And the point being is that this idea of that the deliverer will come from Zion, and again, from Isaiah's perspective, 700 years later, here, come, here comes the Messiah. Well, what did the Messiah do when he came the first time? Everything that Paul says that he did here in these verses. What did he do? He comes to banish ungodliness from Jacob, from his people. And he says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is what he came to do the first time. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. Listen what first what John says. He says, "You know that he appeared past tense writing now after the death burial and resurrection and ascension of Christ. He says, "You know that he appeared in order to take away sins." This is why he came the first time. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9 about what he came to do the first time that he came. It's speaking of Jesus as as a better high priest. And it says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all. Appeared, past tense, speaking about his first coming. But he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, that's already happened. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. You see that? When he appears the second, he came the first time to deal with sin, which is what Paul's saying, is quoting these verses here, says that he did. When he comes the second, he's not coming to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He came to deal with sin the first time. And Paul's point here is in quoting this passage about the deliverer, the rescuer, is that this has already happened in time, space, history. It's it's the, it's the main epicenter of everything that redemptive history points to. They looked forward to it from like Isaiah's day and, and the Old Testament prophet's day. We now look back at it from where we live, looking at what has already happened and how Jesus came to deliver all those who are in bondage to ungodliness and to sin. Do you follow? Here's the point. <laughs> Let's break it down. Jesus came to deliver. He came, he came to rescue. 
and specifically to rescue, to banish ungodliness. How many of you are willing to admit that ungodliness is a cruel slave master? I don't think I'm the only one that sees this. I guarantee we see it every day. I guarantee every person here, you see it in your life. You probably see it in the lives of others, but I would encourage you to also look in the mirror, and I'm sure you do. Deep down in the quietness of your own heart as you're laying in your bed at night. You know that you're in bondage to ungodliness. Jesus Christ came to rescue us from this, brother and sister. He came to deliver us. He took all of our sin upon himself on the tree, on the cross. All the darkness of the world that humanity had brought about. It's why literally there was this crazy miracle-like manifestation. The Gospels talk about it. As Jesus Christ, the light of the world, hung on the cross and the Father placed all of the darkness of our sin upon him, the bright noonday sun of the Middle East turned dark for about six hours. As the light of the world became a curse on our behalf. He came the first time to deal with sin, and when he comes again, he comes to save and to deliver fully and finally all those who are waiting for him or to destroy his enemies. Which one are you? Here's how you can know. Have you trusted in Jesus? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. Also, um, another little brief note, the deliverer will come from Zion. Zion is speaking of a heavenly mountain, just very quickly in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. So when it says he came from Mount Zion, it's saying Jesus, the incarnation, he came from heaven. Very God of very God, and he came to earth to deliver us from our sins. So, again, understand what Paul's saying here. Not just when, but how. Not just how, but who. Jesus. And then secondly, not just one, but both. What do I mean by this? Look at verse, look at verse 28. <coughs> not just one, but both in regards to how God views lost humanity. He says, as regards the gospel, they, speaking of unbelieving unbelieving ethnic Israel, who has not yet believed in their Messiah, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. When he says for your sake, what he's talking about is the same thing he talked about last week, that branches were broken off and we were grafted in. Meaning salvation has come to us for our sake because branches have been have been broken off that we might be brought in. But as regards election, he says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Remember back in chapter 9, I believe it's in verses, verses 4 and 5, he talks about all the privileges of being a national-born Jew. He says, you know, to them uh, we're given the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, all, the, all these different things. In regards to, to that election for the sake of their forefathers, God is not going to stop working in their life to select a true spiritual Israel from Israel, okay? Um, But here's the point I want you to get when I say not just one, but both. Does God's wrath burn against sinners or does he love sinners? I feel like even just within Christendom as a whole, it's like we, we divide into camps on this. 
you have some people that are like, um, that are like, God's wrath is against us. And it, yeah, true. And then you've got other people that say, God, just, he just loves you. Don't worry about it. Can we just, can we try to settle this once for all? <laughs> Maybe that's too big of a, I don't know, undertaking for this moment. But I really, I, I think we know this, but let's say it clearly and let's move on to maturity here. Is the answer that God's wrath is against you or is the answer that God loves you? The answer is yes. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as, as, as your Savior. Let me say this as clearly as I can. The wrath of God burns against you. While that is totally true, and it should make you nervous. That's why the Bible says it. It fully intends, you're like, that doesn't make me feel real great. 100%, I agree. At the same time, he loves you. He loves you with all his heart. And he has made a way for you to be saved. It's through trusting in Jesus. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is nothing you can do to earn it. He freely offers it to you. And so it's not just one but both. Look at, think about the man who's writing this. The Apostle Paul who was an ethnic born Jew. Think about his salvation story in Acts chapter 9 is that he's on his way to persecute Christians. A bright light falls around him. He hears a voice from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Apostle Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ, and yet God met him in his disobedience as an enemy, and he saved him. It's not just one but both. And church, just in terms of sharing the gospel and being clear on how we should view this, this is it. Let's not be immature and think that we have to just pick one or the other. The Bible teaches both. And in fact, when we say, are you saved? The primary thing we're asking is, saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. But I believe it's Paul Washer that said, God saves us for himself, by himself, from himself. Amen? This is what, this is what salvation is. Lastly, not just, one, not just one but both, but also not just then, but now. Okay? So hang with me. It's the same idea of that this isn't just something future like a thousand years from now, although that's also probably true, but it's also future in the sense of later today and later this week. It was, and that was true for Paul, and that's true for us today. Look at, look at verse uh, 30. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, meaning just how the ethnic, many of the unbelieving ethnic Jews are now, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. So you see those two nows? At one time, um, you were disobedient, but now we've received mercy. So they too have now been disobedient, but there's a third now. Now watch this. Verse 31 in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Do you see why I'm saying this isn't just something, even as Paul was writing this, it wasn't just something regarding a thousand years in the future. It was about what God was doing now. And church, if you hear nothing else I say today, you've got to hear this is that it is our responsibility now. 
in the day and age and time and places in which we live to take the same gospel that Paul preached to the nations. Whether that nation and whether that tribe and tongue and language be the Amish or the Mennonite or Baptist or whatever, or whether it be in distant lands that have never heard the gospel. It is our responsibility to take this message of the deliverer, of the rescuer, of the one who has come to banish ungodliness and sinfulness and to forgive our sins. It is our job to take this message now to the world. If there was just one thing that I would like to change in the minds of Christians regarding their understanding of end times things, of eschatology, it would be to get every Christian to understand that the most important thing in world history has already happened. That Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, and it's not about, you've heard me say this before, but I'm sorry, I'm going to rant on it again. It's not about just circling the wagons and waiting to be raptured out of here. It's about taking the concrete reality that has already happened, meaning Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, really lived, really died, and really was raised again on the third day. After he ascended, he poured out the Holy Spirit, and he's given it to every single person that believes in him. And we are to take this message in light of his his victorious resurrection, and we are to go everywhere. Wherever he calls us to go, we go in victory because the victory has already been won. Do you understand? This is the primary thing. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Do I think there's going to be a a mass revival of Jewish people at the end times? I think so, but I'm not fully sure. But here's what I know for certain, is that in the time and space in which we live, we are to take the same gospel that Paul preached and we are to proclaim it with humility, but also with courage and with boldness, and it will change the world. Do you believe that? That's my question. Do you believe it? Thank you. This this is it, folks. And again, maybe I feel like maybe I'm not doing a good job of explaining because I'm really pumped up about this, if you can't tell. Maybe I'm not explaining it well, but brother, sister, this is, we should all be pumped up about this. This is the message that we've been, that we've been given to proclaim, and it's amazing, and it changes people's lives, and it brings dead men and dead women to life if they'll just trust him. They'll just, if they'll just trust him. Um, whoo, it is 11.04 already. And I'm, I'm just getting started, okay? Well, look at verse 32. I'll skip some things here in my notes. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, it, it's not really that catchy. You probably have never seen it on a coffee mug, a t-shirt, or a Thomas Kincaid painting, but it's a really important verse, and I'm gonna argue that verse 32 literally is a very concise, accurate summary of all of Romans chapters one through 11. Here's the summary, not just of this section, but of everything Paul has said this point up to the letter. Here's what it is, verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now when he says all, sometimes people say all means all, and that's all all means. Uh, Not actually true. Because here when he says all, he's not talking about universalism. When he says have mercy on all, he's not talking about 
he's not, he's not talking about that every single person is going to be saved. There is a heaven and there's a hell. All those in heaven will, will be those who all they've done is trust in Jesus. They've looked away from self and said, Jesus, save me. That's how, that's how it works. Those in hell are those who have rejected that message. Um, but it says here that he's consigned, altered. The, the, the idea of consigned literally means to be like enclosed. It's used of capturing a bunch of fish into a fishing net. And again, I, you know, it's okay if you're offended by this. I actually think that's the point. But God's fishing net of humanity, he's gobbled everybody up into one big fishing net of disobedience. He is consigned all to disobedience. He's not made him sinful. We've rebelled. We're the sinners. We're responsible. But we're sinful. And he has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And he has compassion on whom he has compassion. Well, I want to be one of those. Then just trust Jesus. That's it. Just trust him. Just believe in Jesus. And this is what Paul has said throughout the letter. Now, if you, if you, <laughs> if you understand all that Paul said, again, this is a letter. It has taken us, what is this, September? It's taken us nine months <laughs> to get through it all. But again, if you were reading it, it would have been about 20 minutes to a half hour maybe, depending how long you've read up until this point. And Paul wants us to be thinking about all that he said in chapters 1 through 11. And then, in verse 33, he breaks out into praise. He just breaks out. It's, it's in the letter, but I, it, it's very much written like it's, it's spontaneous. It's out of the overflow. It's, and, and brother, sister, you understand, this is why when I say theology matters. Matters for what? It matters for our worship. That all theology is to end in doxology. That all truth is to end in praise. In the glory of God. And just look, this, is, this has been, I don't know, this has been personally enriching to me this past week. <clears throat> Jesus said that every jot and tittle is the way the, um, those are the, the, the Greek words that's translated, translated that way in the, in, the, in the King James Version. But he says every jot and every tittle of the law will be fulfilled, in other words, of God's word. It, in English, we would say every dot of the I and every cross of the T is inspired by God. And I want you to look at this first word here in verse 33, the word O. <laughs> o. I was just thinking about that. That's part of the inspired text, do you understand? Oh. And again, I really, this really caught my attention this past week. And as you go to the end of Paul's letter in chapter 16, we find out that Paul is not writing this himself, but he's dictating it to somebody who's transcribing it, a guy named Tertius. Tertius. And uh, Tertius mentions that at the, end, at the end of the letter, as Paul's kind of, kind of closing it out. But I wonder here, as Paul is, trans, I mean, picture this, Paul transcribing this, Tertius is writing, I don't know, is he writing fast, slow, is he trying to keep up, is Paul taking his time, I'm not sure. But he's writing this, and then I think here Paul breaks into praises. Oh, and Tertius like, Dude, oh, is, is that in here? Is that part of it? And again, I don't know if this happened, but I think Paul's like, oh yeah, that's Stan. Brother and sister, we have, we have a gospel, we have a theology, we have a message that should make us go, oh, 
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Because it is this message that, again, and just put yourself in this place. Go back to verse 32. He's consigned all to disobedience in the sinful fishnet of humanity. Eric Miller was in that fishnet. Completely deserving of God's wrath and punishment. But he has had mercy on me, not because of me, but simply because of Jesus Christ. And the blood that was shed. And if that doesn't make you go, oh, I don't, I don't know what to say. He, he breaks out here, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how, how inscrutable. And again, he's, he's using parallel terms like, what's the difference between unsearchable and inscrutable? I really don't know. I've looked him up in the Greek. I've tried to do a word study on it. They're basically the same thing. In other words, what he's saying is he's just reaffirming what he said just before that, the depth of the riches of the, like, it's so deep. God's ways are so deep and so eternal and so infinite and we are so temporary and so here like a vapor and so finite that good luck understanding everything that he's doing in your life. This is why the Bible says that he is working for us who have trusted in Christ Jesus in every trial, in every tribulation, in every loss, in every death, in every hardship, everything that he's doing is working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And you're like, well, Eric, I know, but it just feels like pain right now. I don't understand what it's doing. Of course you can't understand what he's doing. His ways are beyond us. His ways are rich and deep beyond the depths of which we will never find. Even in eternity, this is what he's going to do. But I promise you this, it is wise and it is according to perfect knowledge and it is just and it is for our good and it is all out of the overflow of mercy because we have earned none of it. We've earned absolutely none of us, none of it. And once again, what should our response be? Oh, oh. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, brother, sister? Remember that when you, when you come to prayer, please hear me, I'm not saying this, that your prayers don't matter. Your prayers matter in, incredibly. Like God has given us prayer to call out to him and he has chosen in his sovereign ways to actually change things when we pray. I don't fully understand that because he's sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. He makes it happen. But I know that our prayers make a difference. And so he wants us to pray for our lives to be changed, for people's lives to be changed, for those that don't know Jesus to come to Jesus for direction for our life, that we might honor and glorify him with our lives. It, our, our prayers matter, but, but, but just know this also, that when we pray, we have never given him new information. Not one time. I pray that way many times. Like, it's just, I'm usually pretty frustrated when I do it. Like, God, how did you, you know, and God's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know about that. <laughs> Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Answer, nobody. Verse 35, and, and for those that grew up in church, I, I, 
I'll argue this all day long, is that it's very easy to grow up in church and to grow up with this idea of thinking that somehow we've put God in our debt because we go to church, because we go to, you know, we went to Awana, because we memorized verses, because we didn't just come Sunday mornings, but we grew up going Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, and we went to VBS, and we went to church camp, and, you know, we tried to, you know, give our, give our best to Jesus, and we saved ourselves for marriage, as you should, and all these different things. Let me just tell you that I've seen this in my own life, I've seen it in the lives of so many, of so many different, different people throughout the years, is that we end up having this attitude, especially when we grow up in church, that we somehow put God in our debt. Dear friend, nobody puts God in their debt. Nobody. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? When we come and when we give our money, when we come and we give our praise, when we give our time to sacrifice and, and, and to serve, God is not in our debt. from him he's the source through him he's the sustainer and to him he's also the receiver are all things to him be glory forever when I think, so, I think it was a, a book title one time I, don't, I have no idea who wrote it but when the game is over it all goes back in the box you know whose box it is God's. Everything is from him and through him and to him. And so to him be the glory. And church, I, in light of the theology of, again, not just what we've looked at this morning, but all of Romans 1 through 11, and what Paul's going to continue to connect dots between what we believe is true and the way that we live through the rest of this letter that we'll get into next week, starting in chapter 12. Through what is true and then, and then what to do. But it's not as if there is an application right here in front of us before we even get to that. And the application is that, guys, the end of all things is worship. We were made to worship him. And can I just, I, I want to try to make this a little bit practical. And I, I please... I feel like what I'm about to say may be offensive. So can we just affirm at the beginning here, before I say this, that we all love each other? Yeah? We good? Okay. I love you. Okay. I, I honestly think this, we shouldn't scoot past this. I'm not just trying to make something up. But as Paul, in light of what he, <laughs> in light of, what he teaches, then he breaks into this spontaneous praise that starts with the word, oh. I, I want us as a church, this is an application for all of us together, I want us as a church to be more literally, outwardly vocal in our expression of praise to God. Is that fair? I got one little amen down here somewhere. Pretty appreciate that. Let me, let me say this. Again, please, I'm, what I'm about to say is, if you've said this to me, I am not picking on you. I promise you, you're not the only one. I, I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to say like I hear it every week, but I have heard it consistently for almost 10 years since we started the church. Okay? People will come up to me after the service, and I love it, and I, I, I appreciate the encouragement. I, it is encouragement. I take it as encouragement, but they'll, they'll say this. Almost all of them say the same thing. They'll say, man, when you said such and such today, they'll, they'll, they'll say this. 
I really wanted to say amen. But I just, I just didn't. Look at me. Let's just say it. Yeah? Amen? Let's just say it. Now, please hear me. Please hear me. I know what's going to happen. You just did it. You, oh, I'm going to step off the stage. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, okay. Um, you just did it, but here's why I know what's going to happen. I know next week there might be something where you feel like saying amen. And in a couple weeks, you know, I don't know if Matt Rao preaches or Mark Rao or Matt Beach or whatever. Somebody's going to, you're going to want to say it. And you're going to, and there's going to be that, there's going to be that, that there's going to be that conservative I grew up around here, and this isn't how we do things. There's going to be that little check valve that's just like, oh, don't, don't do it. Blow right through it. All right? Blow right through it. Because, yeah, come on. Let's go. I, hear me. It's not about, do you understand? I, let me say this also. If what I'm saying or anyone said, if it ain't that good, I'm not looking for you just to make things up. You know, it's like some you walk on stage, you're like, good morning, yeah, whoa, I'm like, whoa, okay, we haven't even done anything yet. Um, like, I'm not looking for that, but I'm looking for authenticity. I'm like, the, the gospel that we preach, the truth that we talk about from his word, it is worthy of our praise. And for us to hold back, for us to keep it in and go, well, that's not the way I grew up, I don't care. I didn't grow up that way anyway. Listen, I grew up in church where you wouldn't even put words on the screen because you had to hang on to a hymnal because, and I literally heard this one time, not saying everybody believed this, but I literally heard the phrase, well, if, if, if people aren't holding on to hymnals, they might raise their hands. I'm not against hymnals. I'm not against hymnals. But do you hear me? Are you with me? He is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. Worship team, you can come up. We gotta close. Guys, this is such good news. Let me just say this. Two things. Number one, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you don't know where you spend eternity, you've heard that there's a God, and maybe you have heard that he's against you and he's, and he, and he's angry and he's mad at your sin, uh, let me just shoot straight with you, okay? I'm not gonna hold back. That's partly true. But it's not just true for you. It's true for every single person in this room. That's what we were born into. But here's the other part of it that you've got to hear is that he made a way to save you from your sin. That he so loved not just you but the world that he sent his son, the thing that was most precious to him. And Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life that you can never live. He took as a perfect spotless lamb of God, perfect substitute. He hung on the cross and took the punishment not only did he live the life that you and I could never live, but that we should have lived, he also took the punishment upon himself that we deserved. And the Bible says that it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. We're all in the same camp. Nobody's here to gloat over you. No one's here to go, oh my goodness, I'm, you're not saved. What's wrong with you? No, no, no. We were all there at one time, and all we have is the mercy. All we have is the action of the deliverer, the rescuer, who came and hung on the cross, but didn't stay dead and was raised again on the third day. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your savior, I plead with you to trust him right now. I'm not gonna lead you in the prayer because I don't need to lead you in a prayer. You call out to him right now, in your heart, or do it out loud. I don't care, it's fine. This is a safe place, you know why? Because we're all in the same boat. 
We have all been consigned to disobedience, and the only thing we have is the mercy, is the mercy of Christ. And for those of you that do know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm asking you, as we stand and as we sing, listen, I, I know none of us is going to do it perfectly, and we're still going to face times in our lives when we want to shrink back, when we want to be quiet. But brother, sister, in the name of Jesus, can we please go forward? Because if we can't be loud, if we can't express our worship and our praise here, I'll be honest with you, I don't know that we're going to do it out there. So let's not hold back in giving Jesus everything of which he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for this great gospel. Thank you so much for all that you've done throughout history. Thank you that we are still a part of that history. Thank you that the deliverer, the rescuer, isn't just coming someday to, to, to get us out of here, but he's already come to deal with sin. So Lord, I pray that we would live all of our lives as lives of worship. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you, I, I truly thank you for this church. I thank you for every single person that you've brought, Lord, because it, Lord, you know it's not because of me, it's despite me. I thank you that I get to be a part of a local church that loves you, and that comes together to worship and to sing praises and believes in the power of the gospel. Please help us, 